Daniel chapter 4. Um, let me just kind of, again, I've done this every week. I won't go into depth like I have in the past. But in the book of Daniel, it's fascinating. Um, if you are new or newer, and you're like, what is Daniel? Why are you going through this? Um, here's a few Jewish men that it's focusing on specifically that have been taken captive from Israel, from Judah, from Jerusalem, and they've been brought into Babylon. Um, this is just history. Babylon was really the world empire at this time. This is the time or the height of its strength. Uh, we talked about the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes fell to the Assyrians in the seventh century. But we see that Jerusalem and Judah really fell uh, to the Babylonians um, around the, the sixth century. And so for about 20 years, uh, Jerusalem's being besieged. It's going, it's taking Jewish people as slaves into Babylon. They're actually trying to assimilate them into their culture. And so the book starts off with Daniel um, and his three friends, essentially. Um, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, that's kind of how we know them. But you see Daniel and his few friends as the focus. And it's fascinating because they're young men stripped away from their home in a whole new culture, in a whole new environment. It's more of a pluralistic or polytheistic culture. Many gods are worshipped there rather than their god, the one true god. And you kind of see them at a young age have to like discern, like, how do we navigate living as just faithful followers of God in a pagan culture? Like, we're the minority here. There's not a lot of people who look favorably on the Jewish people. How do we do this? How do we navigate this? And so right away, you just see their faith being tested time and time again. And we found this necessary for us as a church just to kick off the year 2024 um, with this book in mind. Just how do we have resilient faith in a culture that's kind of like anti-God? That's saying, you know what? We've been there, done that. We tried the whole Christian thing. We've, we've moved beyond that. And how do we now live as, like, in a sense, faithful exiles? Um, how do we have resilient faith when you feel like you're the minority in a culture that wants nothing to do with God? And so this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And it starts off with them like remaining faithful, like we're going to eat a certain type of way. And then it says that Nebuchadnezzar saw that they were better than his men. And Daniel 2, he has a dream. We see they interpret his dream when no one else could. If you missed Daniel 3 last week, I would encourage you to go back. Um, the classic fiery furnace passage that we all know through our VeggieTale experience. I would say go back and reread it through like an adult lens and through a historical lens. And it's fascinating. If you missed it, I would love for you guys to go back and listen. But time and time again, you see their faith being tested. You see Nebuchadnezzar having these moments or experiences with God. He kind of praises God at different times, but it's not like a true praise. It's kind of like a praise amongst all the other gods, but it's not like a true repentance that Nebuchadnezzar has. Now, here in chapter 4 is fascinating. I, I mentioned this, but there was a change in chapter 2 where the book starts being written from Hebrew to Aramaic, and now it's being written in Aramaic all the way to the end of chapter 7. So the Bible's primarily written in Hebrew and in Greek, but here in this section we see it being written in Aramaic. Now, chapter 4 is fascinating because it's debated among scholars, but it seems to be, regardless, like there's an overall consensus that either Nebuchadnezzar is actually writing these words himself, and Daniel 4 is written by a pagan king, or it's him explaining, like, let me tell my testimony as Daniel is penning this. Either way, it's fascinating because Daniel 4 is basically Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So I'm going to kind of tell you the end, and then we'll, like, walk through it. Like, we're going to do that, what, you know, movies do. Like, here's the end, and let's go back to the beginning. I don't know. That's what they do, they do in this book. But it, it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar has a true encounter with the one and true living God and seems to be converted to the God of Daniel. This is fascinating. Now, there's a lot of debate. Um, and here's the thing. It, whether or not um, we don't, we, there's, like, a true conversion Nebuchadnezzar, God grants him restoration because he does seem to repent and repent humbly. 
So I find this fascinating because there's a question, is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm going to maybe say yes. All right. So, like, it's funny. I, I like, it's been fun to study this all week and, like, see different authors and writers and thinkers and, like, what they think. And the majority are like, he probably is, which is a crazy thought. Here's, like, a wicked king that seems to have a true encounter with God. He praises God at the beginning of chapter 4. We see his testimony. At the end of 4, he goes back to praising God. Now, I told you this earlier weeks ago, but uh, the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order necessarily. The first four chapters are. Next week in chapter 5, it jumps ahead to the future. Back in chapter 7, it goes back in time. It's kind of weird that way, so we'll, we'll look at that. Um, but I want you to see that Nebuchadnezzar seems to have a true encounter with God. And this is the last we see sort of of him in this way, just specifically focus on him. So he had, he had this, um, like a, an encounter with God time and time again. I'll put it up here this way, but chapters 1 through 3, here's what Nebuchadnezzar kind of experienced. Um, in chapter 1, he realized the kingdom of God is better than he thought. He saw that the, men, the word is literally better. These men were better than his men. The kingdom of God is wiser than he thought. In chapter 2, the vision is interpreted. In chapter 3, the kingdom of God is more powerful than he thought. So he's having these little experiences, but still no true conversion. And yet in chapter 4, he seems to have a real encounter with God. And I'm just amazed, I'm truly amazed by God's patience with him, his faithfulness with him. He's had moment after moment to be like, whoa, your God is the true God, but yet he never really believed or lived into that. Until here in chapter four, he has a huge humbling process and seems to repent. So I find this fascinating, maybe not, maybe for you, like, I don't know. Um, Daniel's an interesting book, man. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of dreams, a lot of visions. We'll do our best to get into those details, but I don't want to miss the big picture. Nebuchadnezzar basically says, even at the end in verse 37, God humbled me, and I responded, eventually. <laughs> eventually, I realized he's the one true God. And so you see this, this humbling process happen. So the title today is Be Humble or Be Humbled, All right? Kind of in, in your face. Be humble. This is just scriptural. Be humble or you're going to be humbled. Sit down, stay humble, or be humble. I don't know how it goes. Um, all right. Uh, why don't we do this? Uh, we're going to read this, but there's 37 verses. Before we jump into it, before we read it, I do just want to slow down. I do want to kind of just quiet our hearts a little bit. I just want to ask the Lord to speak and give clarity. Um, it, the reality is there are certain chapters in the Bible where you feel like God is really focused on a couple, a couple of big picture ideas for us. Um, I do think the reality is I think a lot of us bring into our relationship with God a lot of pride and a lot of ego. And I don't think this is just for a certain type of people. I think that we can almost even have a self-righteous type of pride in our life. Um, I think we can have a pride of like, I'm beyond that. Like my intellect, my experiences, who I've been trained by, I'm done with this whole God thing. I think there's a lot of ways in which we can kind of bring pride into our relationship with God. I would just ask you um, just today to maybe search your heart in that way. Like, Lord, search me. Where's pride building a wall between me and God? This is not just some pagan king who needed to be humbled. Um, every person ever will either have to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord or they will be humbled. And so this is not just like, oh, this is a cool old story. Like the only way to approach God is through humility. We're, we're told time and time again, God resists the proud. But what? But gives grace to the humble. And so I, I hope this is more than just a story, but that Jesus would do this something in our lives where um, we approach him humbly. So why don't we just take a second, bow your head, let's pray, let's just seek the Lord on this, and then uh, we'll look at our text. Father, we are so grateful that you speak. That week after week, God, your word truly is a lamp to our feet. And Lord, um, we just want to come to you right now and say, Lord, we need you. We ask that you would speak, that you would move. That Jesus, you'd do something unique in our hearts. Lord, I know that there's many things where I want to say in my life, I'm good. I, I got this. 
in reality, Lord, I'm weak, and I need you. And I, I ask for everyone in this place that they would experience your grace, that your grace would humble them, that, it, God, it just, it just takes away any sense of, look what I did, look what I've worked for. Lord, I just ask that you would do a deep work in our lives, that we would walk in humility. Jesus, that you led us in this example, that you humbled yourself to the point of becoming a man and to the point of the cross. And Lord, help us to learn from you, Jesus. Help us to see, Lord, what it is you want us to see in this text, not get lost in some of the details, but to um, just see what it is you're saying to us today. In your precious name, amen. You know, I want you to think about um, an experience in your life where it, it essentially just changed the trajectory of your life. You know, we, I think we've all had an experience or two that, like, this was a defining moment that changed our focus or our life or outcome. You know, it is kind of fun if you, like, think back. Everyone has a story where, like, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here now. And that could be, like, a negative thing, a positive thing. You know, I think back to, like, when I was 15 and, like, going to, like, the vending machines and, like, talking to this girl. And I'm like, oh, she likes that movie. I like that movie. And now she's sitting here somewhere. Where's my wife? I don't even know. Um, oh, there she is. <laughs> but I think about just meeting her. Like, that, that was a life-changing moment. Like, it's funny to look back and be like, oh, my gosh. I remember when I met you. And then I, here's my first impression of you. And I'm glad I, you know, repented of that. Um, but I love looking back to, like, those moments that you're like, that changed everything. That changed everything. I think back to, like, high school. And I was, I was playing this, like, one time this travel tournament. And I just remember getting, like, violently injured on, like, the third play of the game. And in front of, like, it's probably the, the a game that I've never been around that many scouts in my entire life. And I just imagine all of them wiping my name off the list, right? And I just, like, I feel like how the Lord used that, though. The Lord used that in a way where I, at that time, was so frustrated, so angry. And I saw God just brought me closer to him. There's a few moments, whether positive or negative, that you just feel like completely change the trajectory of your life. And you're like, what is that? And, like, even right now in this room, all of you are here. And it's funny if you're like, yeah, it's kind of weird that I'm even here in this room right now. Like, you might be like, I, I probably shouldn't be in this room based off a few different things that have happened in my life. But here you are right now. And I do believe there's these moments where God is just trying to really get our attention. And I don't know about you, but I feel like the Lord has been so patient in trying to get my attention. And I'm like, put it off, put it off. And there's times where it's like, he almost grabs me, like, wake up. Like, what are you doing? I'm very thankful for the people in my life who are like, what are you doing? Like, do not squander and waste your, like, life. Like, why are you giving yourself over to this thing? Like, a few people have really poured into me in a way that changed the trajectory of my life. And I think about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he had Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3. It's interesting. We look at the book of Daniel as these Jewish men being faithful in exile, when in reality, you almost also see this other parallel idea of God. is like, I'm trying to reach a pagan king and a pagan people through these Jewish exiles. So we almost like see this book as like, it's about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in reality, you see God in his sovereignty and his grace is like, I want to reach the leading empire of its day. I want to reach this pagan king. I'm going to surround him with men who love me supremely and who are uncompromising in their faith. And in a pursuit of this man, in pursuit of this king. I'm so grateful that we have a God who's like, this story that we see, we kind of go, I, you know, we like to make ourselves like the main character in the story. It's never been about us. It's always been about him. And it's always about been bringing people to him. And so even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even Daniel, there's a temptation to think it's about them. It's not about them. God's like, how do I bring all people to myself? And so the issue specifically with Nebuchadnezzar is his pride, man. I mean, if there's been a guy who has pride and ego, if there's a, probably a primary character, it's this guy. 
huge ego, the hanging gardens, the walled city, this 90-foot statue of solid gold. I mean, this guy is just prideful, arrogant. And God is like, I'm going to break that. Like, you can either humble yourself or you're going to be humbled is essentially what's happening here. If you guys have read, um, it's a classic book, obviously, but there's a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, and, and it's a, an amazing book. If you get a chance, please read it if you've not read it. But I think it's chapter 8. One of the chapters he, he calls it, chapter whatever, but it's just called The Great Sin. The Great Sin. And what do you think that great sin is? Pride. I mean, he literally tattles it. This is the sin above all sins, essentially. That every sin stems back to pride. And here's what he says. It's a longer quote, but I'm going to read it. Can I do that? I'm going to do that anyways. Here we go. C.S. Lewis, and a lot of C.S. Lewis probably today. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes. I love this. Everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. They admit that. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I've very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Ooh, they're like, they're so prideful. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> the vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere uh, flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride that leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. <sighs> if you're like, yo, that person, they're prideful, right? It's, this is fascinating. This lives in all of us. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Um, we have to not see this as this is someone else. I used to like, I think I've told this joke, but I loved it. My friend's uh, dad in high school would always joke. He would tell us an amazing story about like his childhood or growing up, and he'd always do this thing. He goes, okay, okay, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> and I always loved when he did that, and it's funny because I'm like, that's basically what we're saying. Like, okay, okay, <laughs> you tell me now what you think. Um, there's this thing that lives in all of us. It's not just for someone else. You know, it's interesting, if you go to any, like, Barnes & Noble bookstore, anywhere you go, um, you're not going to probably find a self-help book that deals with, let's tackle the issue of pride. That, you know, that we, we want to tackle a lot of other issues. Maybe, like, a lack of discipline, lack of, you know, maybe there's just laziness, whatever it might be, but you're not going to see, like, we got to, like, really hit this issue of pride. Like, what is that? And why does God care? Why does the Bible just talk so much about pride? Like, God, why do you care? Like, isn't there a sense where, like, people should feel good about their efforts and work, and there's, there is something about that. Ecclesiastes even talks about that. It's okay to feel like a sense of like, wow, like my work paid off in this way. But how does that cross over into pride and what does that look like? And so I just, I do think it's worth exploring. Um, you see this so clear in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So God's very clear. Pride, arrogance, that mouth, that evil mouth. I hate that. I hate it. When, and in Proverbs 6, it talks about the seven things God's, God hates. One is a proud look. Just, I don't know. It's not, I don't like that. Despise that. This thing keeps, this pride or arrogance keeps you from me. Another way is uh, Proverbs 16, 18, and we know this well, it says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant or haughty spirit before a fall. 
just whenever you see someone about to fall, you see like there's this, this elevation of self. It's kind of scary. Like when you start to see someone begin to believe the praise that is given to them. So the best advice people give me is don't believe the praise you receive and the criticism you receive. <laughs> like you can believe the praise you receive, it lifts you up. You can breathe, b- believe the, air, the criticism you receive. In reality, you just believe what Jesus says about you. And there's something so freeing because what he says about me is I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. It's like this, it deflates the ego and it lifts you up at the same time. And so how do we, how do we keep this in focus? So as we're going to look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's Nebuchadnezzar, like, it's almost like this excited new convert. And there's nothing like a new Christian. When you see a new Christian, they're just like so excited about the faith. There's something really sweet about it. And verse one through three, he's like, this is the God of heaven. And he like, you see, and then he walks through his testimony and he ends with also praising God. So um, this is a little help from Warren Wearsby at this, but here's how we're going to break it up into like six sections specifically. We're going to see exaltation, agitation, interpretation, exhortation, humiliation, restoration. Don't worry, we won't spend too much time on all of these, but if you had to break up this section, this is essentially it. So let's look at the first one. Exhortation, the king's decree. He's like, let me tell you my testimony. So let's jump in now. You guys ready? I promise we'll pick up the pace. Here we go. Uh, Daniel 4 verse 1. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So Nebuchadnezzar seems to be the one speaking and writing. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. He says now like this is like praise. How great are his signs how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse four, he's going to jump into his testimony, but it just begins with like this decree. He's like, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I love this. He gathers all peoples, nations, tongues, tribes. How did chapter three end, essentially, or how did it begin? In just chapter three, if you remember that story. He's trying to gather all tribes, peoples, and nations to just this plain where this idol is lifted up, this solid gold idol, and he's forcing them. He's forcing them to bow down and worship, all right? Here he is now, and he's trying to gather them, and there's not this, like, he's using his power to force, but he's using his power to declare what God has done. It is fascinating because time and time again, I just want to point this out, um, Nebuchadnezzar tries to use his power to force people. Interpret my dream or die. Bow down or die. (laughs) It's like, you better, like, eat this or you might die. Basically, like, they're going to die all right, if they don't do what he wants. But here he's like, I'm going to use my power, not by force, to force, I'm going to, I want to, dec- I want all nations, tribes, and tongues just to hear my story. Hear me out. It's amazing because you kind of see this power dynamic shift in him of like, let me just tell you my story. It's not like, now believe on this God or you will die. You don't see that either, declared either. So there seems to be some sort of heart shift and change essentially. Proverbs 16 says, or 18 says, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud but humility comes before honor. And this is essentially what's happening. Humil- he just, there needs to be humility before he's about to be elevated again. Now, I do want to point this out. Um, the question is, historically, where does this happen? There's a few different scholars that write about this. There seems to be a period of time where Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years, loses it. And we're going to look at that in a second. Um, but, obviously, I want to point this out. There's never been a chronicle of any sort of kingdom where they really highlight the king's negative effects. So if you're like, um, why don't we see this maybe in the Babylonian like chronicles, different things we pulled out throughout history? There's, there's never been a king or kingdoms like, by the way, let me tell you the time um, God humbled me or I lost to my enemy. They never highlight that. But this gives us some insight into some different years where we're not really sure what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in, certain, in some of his activity. So there seems to be this place, this taking place. So here's what I want to say, just kind of to kick this off. He starts off by just saying, let me tell you my story. Um, there's power in just telling your story. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I just want you to know what God has done to me. You know, when people ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Like, why are you a Christian? 
sometimes we can overcomplicate it or like sound like, how do I sound very like smart and apologetic? Sometimes you can just be like, let me just tell you what God has done. That's essentially what he does. Let me just tell you what God has done in my life. I love Psalm 66. He says, come and hear all you who fear God and I will declare what he has done for my soul. This is essentially what he's doing. He's going to be all nations, tribes, tongues. I just want you to hear what God has done for my soul. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just tell people your story. Here's where I was. Here's my arrogance, my ego. Here's how God humbled me. Here's how he forgave me, restored me. Here's how he brought me back to this place of honor. This is essentially what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. I love that he's just walking through his story. There's power in just telling your story. Um, one last thought in, in this. I want you to see th this idea. I think how C.S. Lewis said it was, um, you know, Oh, actually, I think I have to quit. I'm going to read it too. Here's how he said it. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and the people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If you had a, if you had a look at Nebuchadnezzar, he's always boasting in himself or his works or bringing people to celebrate him. And he's saying, as long as you're always looking down on people and on others, you can never see something above you. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar can be brought down so low, he can only look up. And God's like, I have to do this in his life. If your spirit or heart is always looking down and critical of others, you're just judging others, and you're like thinking they're not, they're just fake, they're phony, as long as you are always looking down on others, you never can see something above you. And so I would say like this spirit of like arrogance and pride and looking down, um, don't miss out on looking above. And he literally, he's told a couple different times, lift your eyes to the heavens. You need to see what's above you. So the first thing is this, exaltation, the king's decree. Next, we're going to see his dream, all right? The agitation, verse 4, uh, his dream. So let's just pick back up in verse 4. So he's still talking. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar. So here's my story. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. Uh, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This time it seems like he's giving them the dream, unlike chapter 2. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, uh, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying... O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in interp interpretation. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. So here's his dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. They benefited from this. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth and bound it with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19, he'll explain the dream. So number two, uh, agitation, the king's dream. He has this dream. He's like, all right, I've tried my magicians. I've tried the magi. It says that Daniel was the, 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 the chief of the magicians. This is kind of a fun fact. Um, you know the, the, the magi that, that came looking for Jesus, you know, when he was born? Some actually trace it back to the Babylonians and say, look, somehow by God's grace, they were still looking at the stars and God used that to bring it back to like baby Jesus in the manger. Um, but, here, but here's the idea. He has this dream. It's haunting him. He's afraid. He, I don't know why he calls on the magicians, the enchanters. He did that in chapter 2. It didn't work. He brings in Belteshazzar this time. This time he's like, all right, you come. Tell me it. You will know it. And you kind of hear, this is, again, this is coming from him. This is just the way in which he sees it. He's right in, the, in that way. But what I want you to see is this. Notice um, at verse 4, right away, it sets the tone or the context. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospered in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. I want you to know it's in a moment of just things are going well. When this thing agitated him, it changed his focus. It changed everything about him. It's like he was basically like lured to sleep. I think sometimes one of the most dangerous places to be in, just in general, or as a Christian, is just when things are going well. When things are going well, it's very easy for us to just kind of like fall asleep. I think God has to use things to wake us up at times. Like, I, I really do think this is very important. Like, I don't want to necessarily just move on, but it's when things are prospering. He's like, God's like, hey, I'm going to give you this dream to, like, upset you. You're at the height of your kingdom. Like, you're, you're successful. You're, you're doing it. But I need to wake you up a little bit. And I love that God in his goodness gives him this vision and dream, not because God is trying to judge him, but God is trying to wake him up to what matters. You know, there's a lot of different verses that kind of talk about this, even in the New Testament. But I, I want you to see that the heart of God. It's First Thessalonians 5. It's about the day of the Lord. And here's something it says, and I just think it's interesting. It says, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Here's the idea. Sometimes it's like, hey, guys, things are going well. We're, we're good. Don't worry about it. There's moments where God's like, hey, it's in those moments you should kind of wake up and be like, maybe, maybe the enemy is a genius and he's like luring us to sleep spiritually. And in reality, God's like, no, you need to wake up. There is a battle around you. Don't be sidelined. Don't be asleep. Wake up. It's in the time he was proffering, God gives him this vision. Another way to put it is this. Um, you don't need something traumatic to happen to you in order for you to wake up. So let me just like, I'm very thankful God uses experiences to wake people up. Like, I'm very, I, I've met countless people who basically were like, things were going well, something tragic happens, they realized they're never living for God or living for what matters, and this tragedy kind of brought them to, like, what am I doing? I need to live for what matters. Amazing. I, I'm so grateful for that. However, I'll say this, you know, I hope we can wake up before something tragic happens. Like, I hope we don't need some crazy thing for it to happen for us to wake up. Do you guys remember the, the parable in Luke 12? In Luke 12, Jesus talks about this rich man. And he's super rich. He has barns. He has land. He's farming. He's building. He's like, you know what? I need to build bigger barns. I have so much stuff. Let me just build bigger barns to keep all my stuff in. And in Luke 12, here's what's interesting. Here's like the conclusion. Luke 12, verse 19. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So, listen, here's the conclusion. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's like, you fool. You've lived for the wrong thing your whole life. And before you can even enjoy it, it's taken from you. You should have been laying up for yourself treasures in heaven, laying up for yourselves, being rich toward God. You've been living for the wrong thing. Let me say this. Um, you don't always need something tragic to wake you up. We have the scriptures. I hope the scriptures are enough to wake you up. You know, I, I love the, like, I don't know, this, like, story analogy. I would always hear it as a kid, and some say it's untrue analogy, but whatever. Let me just bear with me. I remember hearing as a kid the story of, like, the sheep who goes astray, and the shepherd gets him and finds him and breaks his legs and carries the sheep over his shoulders, and, like, the sheep eventually learns, the shepherd's for me. Like, he broke my legs. He doesn't want me to go astray, and he fed me and gave me water, and, and that sheep will never leave the shepherd's side. I remember hearing that, and I'm like, I don't want my legs broken. How about I just stay near the shepherd? You know, like, I'd always like, hear that analogy. I'm like, that's cool. That's great. But do I have to have my legs broken? Um, here's the thing, I guess. I'm trying to bring up with this. Nebuchadnezzar needed something insane to wake him up and get him off the trajectory of his life. I'm very grateful that God does do that. You know, there's some people I meet, and I'm like, God, like, I don't know what it's going to take. What is it going to take for them to wake up to what really matters? Why is it they're so self-absorbed and they're so focused on the next thing and the next paycheck or whatever? And they don't care about you or the things that you offer us. And God might use something to wake them up. Or I hope that if you hear this word, they do not harden your heart. I hope that the word of God opens your eyes to what matters. I hope you read something like Luke 12 and you go, you know what? I don't need to be that guy. I actually want to be rich toward God now. I don't want to hear you fool. Your life's going to be taken from you. What have you been doing? The word's enough to wake us up. Would you agree? And again, I'm very thankful God intervenes. He does with Nebuchadnezzar. But we don't always need something dramatic. So he has this dream. He has this, this dream of the tree, the tree that sprouts up. The birds take, take comfort in it. The animals are taking shade in it. It's basically this tree that provides for everything around it. But then it's like, chop it down. Now the root is there, and that's important, but like, meaning it can possibly grow back up again. The stump is there. It can possibly grow back up again, but it's going to be chopped down. And he's like, what is this dream? And Daniel's like, I know the dream. So let's go to number three. Number three is uh, the interpretation, verse 19. The interpretation, look at verse 19. <laughs> Daniel has a tough job. I don't envy Daniel. Here's what happens. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, listen, it says, was dismayed for a while. For some reason, some translations say for an hour. It's a period of time. Just didn't talk, all right? And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. <laughs> it's like, that's easy for you to say. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies, but it's for you. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under the which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, you're the tree who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. He's just repeating the dream. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you 
shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be at the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom uh, he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the, of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. It'll be there until you know this. Therefore, O king, let my counsel, uh, actually, yeah, I'll read that. Let my counsel be acceptable to, to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Okay, so if you're like, I just, Josiah, when you read, my brain goes somewhere else. If, I've been in that club before, don't worry. He's like, let me tell you the dream. The tree that you saw that reached to the heavens that everyone benefited from, like, yes, in a sense, Babylon, like what you did for the world, obviously you brought a lot of terror, but, but people benefit from, benefited from it. And you're that tree, that great tree lifted up to the heavens. I want you to think about this, by the way. Remember Babylon, Babel, and remember what they try to build to reach the heavens. They try to reach the to- that tower to build to the heavens. Essentially now, he's this tree reaching to the heavens, and he's the tree that will be cut down until he knows that it's the most high who can give the kingdom to who he wills, until he realizes that God is sovereign. He's like, until you learn that, this is going to happen to you. There'll be seven periods of time. And I want you to notice something again. So I want you to kind of understand the dream, but notice Daniel, Belteshazzar, notice like his hesitation in this. I don't think it's necessarily because he's like, doesn't want to get his head chopped off. That could be it. But if you look at verse 19, um, it's he was dismayed for a while. He's like, oh, this is going to hurt. This is going to be hard to share. And notice what he says, let this dream be for your enemies. I actually think, so this is about 15 to 20 years after Daniel 3, by the way. So after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's about 15 to 20 years have passed. He spent some time with Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably second, if not very high in command. He's probably built a relationship with him, obviously. He's very trusted among him. I actually see like this heart for the person he's sharing this with. He actually cares about Nebuchadnezzar. And he's actually going to, he cares about him and he's willing to tell him the hard thing. Christians, this is very important for us. One, we should care about who we share the gospel with, (laughs) obviously. We should share, we should really care about them. And we should also not shy away from what the the truth is of the gospel. So here's why I say this. He had some bad news to deliver to someone he deeply cared about and he still delivered the bad news. This is very important. I can love someone and care deeply for them and say, you know what? I have to give you the bad news in order for you to know the good news. Because he actually does offer some good news in verse 27. Like, if you repent, there might be prosperity. But basically what he's saying is, like, this is, this is bad news and you need to know it. Christians, we, can't, we cannot shy away from offering the bad news. Like, I do think there's actually something about us um, sitting in the sorrow for a little bit. Meaning, Daniel sat there for a while and he's like, and I love that because he gets to prompt him. Come on, man. Tell me. What's up? He's like, it's you. Daniel does this. You see this a lot of times in scriptures where it's just like, it's you. You know, it's Nathan to David. It's you. You're the one who stole that sheep. There's just something about being very straightforward. It's you. You're guilty. God's going to cut you off. You stand before God. You're not found innocent. You're found guilty. And there's something about like realizing my sin has cut me off from God. My sin has separated me from God. Sometimes we can be really quick to get to the good news, but we need to sit in the bad news for a little bit. Like, listen, I'll be honest. You know, the scriptures do talk a lot about what happens after life. You might know this, but Jesus seems to talk more about hell than he does heaven. Meaning, the Bible doesn't shy away from, here's the outcome if you don't live for God. Here's what the outcome will be. 
you will be cut off with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't fear man who can destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy the body and the soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28 says. The scriptures are very clear. Like sometimes we need to know the outcome. What happens if you reject God? Listen, I'm really excited about the good news and I want to just straight up get to the good news. <laughs> but I, even in my own faith, I'll say this. Sometimes I need to understand what the outcome would be if I rejected God. Listen, if you, you have to sometimes sit in the thought of what would happen if you reject God and say, God, I don't care. I want nothing to do with you or this, Jesus, the cross, that this is, this is a fairy tale. This is nonsense. I don't want anything to do with this. You have to understand what the scriptures say. Okay, if you do that, here's the outcome of that. There is something about, you know, how Jude even talks about. Like, basically, you're trying to save them by bringing them to the knowledge of truth, the truth that they would be separated forever from God. And I, I'm only sharing this because I, I do think that I'm quick to say, but don't worry, there's not. Like, sometimes we should sit with it because it does make the good news better. And if you don't know how bad the bad news is, you don't know how good the good news is. You need to know how bad the bad news is. I, I, there's something that does, like, listen, I don't want anyone to end up separated from God. Do you think God does? Do you think God wants people separated from him? God in Ezekiel says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, turn and live. You gotta understand, God doesn't want people to be cut off or separated from him by any means. I think people have this weird idea that God is like, well, you disobey me, you're going to hell. God has no desire for anyone to be separated from him. God is like, if you want to go to hell, it's over my dead body. Literally, over my son's dead body, you'll go to hell. You'll have to step over the dead body of Jesus to go to hell. So you have to understand the heart of God. The heart of God is that no one should perish. That is the heart of God. But you have to keep in mind, if you don't receive and understand what Jesus has done for you, that will be the outcome. And I just think that Daniel's like, I'm gonna, it's you, king. You're going to be cut off. You're in these seven periods. The seven periods of like, what is that? It's either seven years or seven just means a complete period of time, complete to whatever God has in mind for you. But it's most likely seven years. There's going to be this complete time or seven years for you to be cut off. You're going to think like a wild beast. You're going to be like an ox. You're going to eat the grass. You're going to lose your mind. Today, that happens all the time. <laughs> People go to schools, animals all the time. This is what he did. He became an ox. He acted like that. The reason why I'm saying this is that he's like, I got to tell you the outcome. This will be the outcome if you reject God. Look at verse 25. He's like, this will happen till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. God's like, he's like, you need to know this. You will be in this state of mind until you learn who God is. You are not God, Nebuchadnezzar. And you still think you are. Still think so highly of yourself. And until you humble yourself, you're going to be humbled. So you either humble yourself and accept this truth or God's going to humble you. And that's essentially what he's telling them here. It's Proverbs 16. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God's like, I don't, I don't look at pride in, in a lighthearted way. God resists the proud. I, I can't think of anything that separates people more from God than, than, separates people more from God than pride. What separates people more from him than that? God's like, I'm willing to give grace but not to the proud. I resist the proud. He's like, you're either going to humble yourself, or I'm going to humble you. So the interpretation, imagine, you're Daniel. You're, you're interpreting the dream. Usually, it, it ends with the messenger's death. Like, oh yeah? Is that what you think? You're dead, right? And, and I just want you to hear like the response. I want you to hear the relationship that there. It's amazing. And actually, verse four, or number four, it's verse 27, but I think what Daniel does is so important. It's this exhortation. So he gives them the interpretation. Verse 27, there's a shift. You have to see the shift. There's a shift in verse 27. He's like, here's the interpretation of the dream. You're going to be cut off. You're going to be cut off. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to be like a wild ox. You're like, people are going to look at you and be like, what happened to you? 
He's like, but, verse 27, therefore, and look at verse number, or verse 27, number four. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So he's like, king, this is the interpretation, but therefore, therefore. He goes, you need to break off your sin. Repent of your sin. How? By practicing righteousness. Now, let me be really clear. Um, you will never break off your sin today by practicing righteousness. You know, by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. So I, I want to make it really clear. No one here is forgiven or justified by being good. Okay, you can't, you can't be like, well, I was pretty good over here. Even though I did these things, God will accept me. Like, no, you're guilty before God. You need Christ's righteousness in you, absolutely. But there is actually, and I want to keep verse 27 up here. Can you like keep it on the screen? There's something still profound about verse 27 that I think we as Christians should listen to. It's something that John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, verse 8. He says what? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. John the Baptist said this to Pharisees. He goes, Pharisees, it's not just, people say, I repent of my sin. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. It's not enough just to say, I repent. Break off your sin, how? By practicing righteousness. So that I think this is actually profound. I, I know I do, and I'm sure you do. It's hard to just like stop sinning, right? It's like sometimes as Christians, we're like, we're known for what we don't do. And in reality, it's like we should be known for what we do. So it's like, I don't do this. I'm, the, I'm a Christian. It's like, what? So you like name all the things that make you a Christian. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. First of all, you have Christ's righteousness in you. It's not, about what you do. it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. But in light of that, it's not about what you don't do. It's about like now in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, here's what I do. So he goes, break off sin. How? By practicing righteousness. So I do think there's something about this. Um, I've, I've, I've given different examples of this in the past, but like if you struggle with something and you're like going through something, you're like, I don't want to go to this website anymore. I don't want to reach out to this person anymore. I don't want to go to that bar anymore. I, I don't want to do that. It's not just, okay, just the answer is not just stop. Sometimes it's like, but replace it. Okay, go feed homeless instead. Go, go care for someone else. Like go love someone else in the process. He actually brings up the poor in this. And I think this is fascinating because this points back to a proverb. It's Proverbs 29. Listen to this. He says, the king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. It seems as if Nebuchadnezzar was an oppressor, obviously. He's like taking advantage of the poor. He's not practicing righteousness. He's trying to be really clear. A king, you have an opportunity. You need to repent of your sin and you need to start doing good. You need to start caring about the, the poor. This is clear for the king. If you care about the poor, your throne will be established forever. Proverbs 29. So there seems to be like this, this call, not just a stop. Just, if someone's like, just stop it. You're like, I don't know how to stop. Practice righteousness. Give yourself over to living in a way that reflects the kingdom of God. This is essentially what he's calling him over to. I, I'll put it this way. It's in, the, in 2 Timothy 2.19. Um, it's like, if you want to know the question, how do I know I'm a Christian? Actually, here's what 2 Timothy 2.19 says. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. This was a saying the early church would understand. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There was something that was really important to the early church. You're like, how do I know I'm saved? The Lord knows who are his. There's something actually really freaking and beautiful about that. God knows who, who belongs to him. And whoever names the name of the Lord, let him depart from sin. So if you're like, I love Jesus, I live for Jesus, beautiful. Repent and put, depart from sin. So I think this is, and this is important. You hear people all the time say, Lord, Lord, but they don't know him. He's like, you also need to depart from sin. Nebuchadnezzar, here's your chance. Truly repent. Truly don't just stop, but be outward looking. Love the oppressed, the poor. Be a king like that. 
here's a way in which you can repent. Perhaps you'll have lengthened of days. So you have this exhortation. So you have the interpretation, the exhortation. Now, let's see if he does it. Verse 28, we have the humiliation, all right? Look at verse 28. It says, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. How many months? 12 months. Pay attention. A year later. A year later. (laughs) And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Did he learn the lesson? Yes. No. Verse 31. While the, listen, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Just hearing God. Oh, King Nebi, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be at the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay. Daniel's like, hey, repent. Perhaps God will lengthen your days. Twelve, twelve months go by. He's just contemplating this. See, this is his testimony. Twelve months go by. He's on the roof of his palace. Look what I have built. <laughs> like I just picture this, right? He's like, look what my hands have built. Look what I have done. Look at my moo. And it turns into a cow. I don't know. But you just make picture as he's talking. Like I just think it's the funniest thing. He's like boasting in what he's done. And it's like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be like the ox. Like, I, I told you this would happen. There's this humiliation process that happens. Here's what I want to point out to you. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This is crazy. Think about that verse really quick in the context of this. He was not immediately turned into this ox or whatever. He's not, he did not lose his mind. And if you get lost in like, did he turn into an ox? What is that? I mean, you really, we really do see this mental illness today. I mean, we do. We see people all the time identifying as different animals now. It's not like, a, this is not an uncommon thing. We like, when I read this like 15 years ago, I'm like, that's weird. Now I'm like, oh yeah, like that happens like every school now in America. Um, but here's the idea. It's sad. You see this happening. You see him have 12 months. 12 months go by. 12 months. He had time to repent. He had time to do what Daniel said in verse 27. 12 months. And I do think this. Sometimes it's very easy to think, well, no one knows. Got away with it. Maybe God's not going to do anything. Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because judgment is not executed speedily, the heart of man just continues to do evil. Don't misunderstand God's goodness and grace and patience for his lack of judging of sin. God is so good. God is so gracious. He will give you time. This is, this is like, you know, Noah, you have a long time to build an ark. People have a long time to repent. Still don't. God is so good. After Jesus dies and rises again, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, almost 40 years later, a lot of time for people to repent and believe on Jesus. There's always like this a period of time where God's like, I'm trying to show you there's time to repent. Sometimes like too much time though, you can go, well, I guess, I guess I'm good now. It's been, you know, been a while. Maybe God is not going to judge my sin. It's not the case. I love 2 Peter 3.9. This is how Peter puts it this way. He says, uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The promise is the promise of judgment. <laughs> the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, before you see this as some angry God, see this as God is so good and so gracious that, you know what? I'm giving you time to repent and believe in me. Don't misunderstand my patience for the fact that I'm not going to judge. No, there will be judgment one day. 
but I want no one to perish. And I want everyone to come to repentance. We need to have this ingrained in our heart. We have a God who begs with us, be reconciled to me. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, as if God were pleading through me, be reconciled to God. So God of the universe is not like indifferent about your salvation or soul or heaven or hell. He actually really cares, pleading, like, be reconciled to me. You don't have to keep living this way. We need to see God in, in this framework of 2 Peter 3, 9. He is willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do you see God that way? That is what God, God is so good. He says, I don't want you to perish. I want you to repent. I'm giving you time. And sometimes we dismiss his time and we, just, we misunderstand it and think that's because he's not going to judge. No, judgment is going to come, but he gave him some time. He still didn't get it. He still didn't respond. It's just what, it's what Paul said in Galatians, right? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. You sow the spirit, you reap life. You sow the flesh, you reap destruction. Don't be deceived. God's not going to be mocked. Well, I guess God doesn't care. No, don't. Don't be deceived. God cares. And God humbles him. And even the humbling of him, even that stump being surrounded by brass, was for the fact that maybe the tree can come back to life. Maybe he can be restored. And this is how it ends with restoration. We'll look at number six, restoration. We'll finish here. Verse 34. So he becomes crazy. Verse 34. At the end of days, I, so at the end of this period of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. That's what he needed to learn. And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or, st or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. That's insane. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do, though, in light of this? Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's amazing. He finally gets it after quite a few opportunities. Now, few things I have to point out. Notice this. He says, may his kingdom live forever. I think it's verse 34. May his kingdom live forever. You understand that approaching the king, everyone would basically approach the king. The first words of anyone's mouth in this day was, oh, king, live forever. That's like how you approach the king. You approach with honor. Oh, king, live forever. He's like, no, no, this king live forever. He seems to finally understand who he is in light of who God is. He seems to get it. I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> God made that really clear. Like, I'm not going to live forever. He, he lives forever. I like how Mark Twain said this. Um, he says, the world laments you for an hour, and it forgets you forever. There is something about that. Where you go, gosh, who am I in light of God? People we love dearly. Yes, of course, you lament. More than an hour. But you lament. In light of history, so many people have come and gone. But we have a God who endures forever, and we have a God who made you to live forever. And you'll either live with him or apart from him. And Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get that. He goes, oh my gosh, Lord, king, live forever. You live forever. Who am I? When he lifted his eyes to heaven, somehow, maybe, whether this is God's, obviously it's God's grace, that he's able to even lift his eyes to heaven and God restores reason to him. And he goes, oh gosh, Lord, when I looked up to you, I realized. Again, when you're proud, you're always looking down and you're never able to look up. And as long as you're looking down, 
He'll never be able to look up. And he finally looks up to heaven. He goes, oh, you're, you're it. You're the king of kings. Your dominion rules and reigns forever. What have I been doing? Why have I been living this way? He finally gets it. He finally realizes my will, it's not about my will. It's your will that's going to be accomplished. And like verse 35, he's like, it's you. You're going to do what you want to do because you're God and I'm not. A.W. Tozer said this so famously. He says, man's, I love this. If you're like, if you struggle with this, welcome to the club. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. We just live in that phrase for a little bit. We have free will because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. There's something, though, that he sees in this. He goes, you're God. I'm man. You can do what you want. I have this really limited free will that you've given me, and you can do that because you're not afraid. You're sovereign. You're God. You can do whatever you want. He finally realizes who God is. Spurgeon said about this text, the God whom we serve not only exists but reigns. No other position would become him but that of an unlimited sovereignty over all his creatures. It's like, I'm not okay with you thinking you're over it all. You need to see who I am. So verse 37, we'll just end with this phrase. Of, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I get it. I, I learned. I learned my lesson. I extol and praise him. I'm not going to praise me. He can bring down. Listen, God can elevate those who are humbled. God will elevate. The, he's like, if you want to elevate yourself, he's going to humble you. If you humble yourself, he'll elevate you. We know this. James 4, 6, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the, the, we have two options. You will either be humble or be humbled. You will either humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Or you'll walk around never looking up, and he will humble. Either the rock falls on you or you fall on the rock. There's a lot of ways to put this. I would just say this. Humble yourself today. We serve a God who humbled himself. That's mind-blowing. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross, on the cross. Jesus is like, I am God of the universe. I will take on human flesh, walk among you, die for your sins in your place. I will show you what humiliation looks like, humility looks like. I will do this. I will, I'm exalted. I'll be brought low so you who are low can be exalted. God was rich. He became poor so that you and I, through our poverty, might become rich. God's like, this is what I do. I want to trade places with you. I want to take on your sin, your filth, your, your self-righteousness, your ego. I'll take all of that. I'll be made low so that you can have a rightful place in heaven one day. Even our access to heaven is by humility. It's receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know this tree that's lifted up, that was cut down? I just think of Jesus who said what in John 12? He goes, I must be lifted up so I can draw all men to myself. Jesus was lifted up on that tree and he was cut down so that you and I could have access to God, so that you and I could have access to heaven. He was the tree lifted up who was cut down for you and for me so that we can ultimately be brought to him Listen, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen? Can we just respond by just prayer and thanking God and worshiping God and just, just briefly take a second and slow down and extol him and praise him? So worship team, come up. We're just going to praise and worship Jesus. We just want to say thank you. We look to you. We need you. God, we look at a passage like this in Daniel 4 and help us not think that we're Nebuchadnezzar. We are. We are way more like him than we realize. I am way more like him than I realize. It's easy for me to think, look what I have done. But Lord, you have done great things. You framed the world through your words. Jesus, all things are made by you and for you. 
Jesus, we are yours. There is no one like you. You are unmatched. We just want to say thank you so much, Father, for giving us your son, that he humbled himself, that he was cut down so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into your presence. And so, Lord, I just ask that, Jesus, you remove the pride and ego, the self-righteous pride, that you remove the pride of our intellect, that we think we know more, we're above you, or beyond you. Jesus, I ask that, we, that everyone here would humble themselves, and if not, that you would humble them. Lord, would you humble people in this room who are still fighting against you because, God, your loving grace of just bringing us, just bringing us to this place of, of humility will ultimately bring us to you. So, Lord, we just want to thank you. We just want to praise you and look to you now, Jesus, in your precious name.